So if Hollywood writes about the judgment of God, this is one of the versions you get. Faced with a pretty woman, tells you about some of your rights and wrongs, you're based on some kind of performance basis. There's no real grace, and um, it's all based upon your works. It's really a quagmire. Take your pick on which version you want, right? Man has to solely rely upon himself. This is what you get when you reject God's record regarding moral responsibility and judgment. Definitely a quagmire. I mean, look at the Derek Chauvin case, or many of you might remember the OJ trial. You know, a televised, televised trial can be riveting if we want to look at it, but the fact is, is that we can imagine tuning into a trial, and let's say that we are given the opportunity to uh, actually be a person whose vote is important about that trial, but only see it through the television. How good would you be with that? You only are seeing what the television wants you to see, what the cameras want you to see. Are you in a position to render a decision just based on television viewing? How adequately can you look at all of the evidence? Because you don't see all the evidence. You don't hear all the testimony. You're just seeing what the television wants you to see. You didn't hear the instructions to the jury. You don't hear the banter between the lawyers and the judge. Would you be able to render a proper verdict like that? There is no way any of us could come up with a proper verdict with that kind of limited knowledge. Yet people are exactly like this when it comes to rendering a judgment against God, that God should not judge people, right? Minimal understanding of God. No understanding of objective morality or sin. And yet they cast a verdict that God can't be a God who judges and shouldn't do such things. And many from their high perch pontificate that they just don't believe in a God who judges, but he shouldn't do that kind of a thing, and therefore... By golly, that settles it. Wow. Pastor Tim Keller says this. In one of my after-service discussions, a woman told me that the very idea of a judging God was offensive. I said, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? She looked puzzled. I continued, I respectfully urge you to consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. I went on to point out that secular Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrine of hell, but they find biblical teaching about turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing. I then asked her to consider how someone from a very different culture sees Christianity. In traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. That society is repulsed by aspects of Christianity that Western people enjoy and are attracted by the aspects that secular Westerners can't stand. 
Why, I concluded, should Western cultural sensibilities be the final court in which to judge whether Christianity is valid? I asked the woman gently whether she thought her culture superior to non-Western ones. She immediately answered, no. Well, then I asked, why should your culture's objections to Christianity trump theirs? The illogic of questioning God's judgments does not stop the modern man from rendering a judgment against an infinite, omniscient God. And in doing so, modern humanity displays their arrogance. And such is the case when many people read a book like Hosea out of the Old Testament, a minor prophet, that's just because he was just a little guy. No, not really. Um, but God was condemning them because Israel was rife with idol worship. And they were supposed to be God's people. They were committing spiritual adultery and physical adultery in their idol worship and sexual sacrifices with temple prostitutes. And so we pick it up in Hosea 5. The chapter begins with an accusation of guilt in the first five verses, and then the rest is kind of announcing what the judgment is. So we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to take a look at part of it today. So let's all stand as we look at Hosea. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of, Israel's, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in Bethaven. We will follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribe of Israel I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he's determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away, I will carry off, and, I, and no one shall rescue. 
I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek you. Father, as we read a very troubling passage, it's troubling because it deals with aspects that we're not always comfortable with talking about. And it's easy to just cast it aside and say, well, that's not for us, but somebody made a mistake in including this. But Lord, something deep down tells us that down that road is destruction itself. It is intellectual suicide. And it certainly is not taking your word seriously. And so, Father, we come before you not understanding all that there is to know, acknowledging that there's mysteries about you and about your word, but Lord, this, this is troubling. And we need understanding. We need your, your heart to help us to have the right perspective and not to be judgmental, but know that you are a God who judges. Help us to know the difference. And help us not to be the purveyors of that judgment, but to leave it to you. We know you're a holy God, and you are free to do what you want that's consistent with your character. Help us to understand you, to rest in your judgment, and help us to understand this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Hear this, O priest, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the kings, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Notice these three imperatives coupled with three different groups in this passage. Israel's called to hear this, pay attention, and give ear. All three speak to the need of heeding the warnings with precision and great care. It reminds me of my father, that when he would get our attention and he spoke, we listened. If he said, now listen here, or I'm talking to you, bud, we knew to stand up straight And there was no squirming away from the pointed admonishment, whatever it was. It's the same kind of pointedness and need for immediate response that is here. Notice the three groups of people addressed. I think this is instructional for us. There were priests. That means religious leadership. Yes, religious leadership being judged then the people, speaking of the entire population, and then the king that was speaking of the monarchy or political leadership. So what we have to acknowledge right off the bat is that the religious institutions, particularly the priesthood and all involved, all right, had to take responsibility for their part of the problem. And the same could be said today. Now, in their case, it was because they were synchronizing 
idol worship with the worship of Jehovah. Okay? And that was an abomination. There can be all kinds of issues related to, when I say religious organizations, I include churches, denominations, not-for-profits. But when there are problems, what's often the first thing they do? Get defensive, right? Or, you know, not be completely honest or open about what's going on. Don't let everybody know what the problems are, right? You know, you go into the self-protective mode. Now, we can relate to that as individuals, but it's especially true of religious institutions who are supposed to be representing who? God, right? So there's, there's defensiveness when problems arise. And yet, just by implication, I think, what we want to see is a quick realization of responsibility and humility and openness, right? It reminds me of, it was, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. The elders made a decision. What it was doesn't matter at this point, but we made a decision and announced it to the church and didn't get a whole lot of feedback, but um, a week or two went by and we realized it was the wrong decision. So we kind of recanted, told the church, hey, we made a mistake in, in this decision we made And I remember when I announced it, guess what the response was from the church? They applauded. Part of it was probably because we were waiting for these numbskulls to catch up with us. We knew it was a bad decision in the first place. But maybe it was because they appreciated just the fact that we, at least in that instance, admitted a mistake. And I'm not saying we always operated this way, but then we did, all right? Honest and humble mistake. All right? We don't trust perfect leaders because we know there aren't any, but we trust honest and humble ones who can make mistakes. Now, the other thing to think about is that Israel was a theocracy. This is where God was looked to for religious and civil laws, not just man's opinion. In fact, kings relied upon prophets to give feedback And in some cases, the prophet would call the king out and the king would have to cease and desist maybe on a particular action or or, or program or, or whatever. Now, because that was the way Israel uh, was organized then, does not mean that God does not operate this way now in terms of holding leaders accountable. Now, we're not a theocracy, but you could be any political system, but I believe God is still going to hold our leaders responsible, religious and political, right? And again, it doesn't matter what system. To whom much is given, what? Much is required. That means, I think, even authority. But the problem is, is that many people think today, especially in the political arena, they don't have to answer to God. God doesn't judge political leaders, and I say to that, hogwash. God will judge, all right? It'd be kind of like me saying, you know what? I don't believe in policemen. I don't believe in judges. Now, how well is that kind of thinking going to be for me if I break the law and I'm arrested? Hey, judge, I don't believe in you. 
Good luck with that, right? We don't have the power to fashion a justice system to our liking, and neither do we have the power to fashion a God to our liking. The world that God created includes moral objectivity, and he holds us morally responsible. Listen to these passages. I'm going to read all from the New Testament, not because the Old Testament doesn't have anything to say, but it's, it's popular now among, you know, quote, progressive. I think they're regressive, but progressive people who fancy themselves that they just cut out all of the Old Testament that talks about God judging. Well, after I read this, they're going to have to cut out a lot of the New Testament as well, all right? So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's in Romans 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. That's not speaking of hell. It's speaking of the judgment of God, 1 Corinthians 3. Here's one you don't often hear much about. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I, I heard of somebody I knew recently whose wife was telling uh, one of her female friends, hey, why don't you uh, go out with my husband? They're still married. Encouraging her to go out with the husband. Dude, really? Um, God will judge. I will tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, Matthew 12. I want you to notice a couple things. Number one, God is holding us accountable, all right? All of us. We are all going to be held accountable. And number two, God is also going to reward. There are two sides to this. I think there's going to be loss of reward. There will be discipline on the earth. So when I say judgment of God's people, that's what I mean. But there's also great reward and blessing for the obedience. That's a part of it. So if, if God sees the sin in secret and will judge that, will he not also reward those things that nobody else seems to notice? Absolutely, all right? So this cuts both ways. For the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. God is clearly pointing the finger at Israel in which these two places were in Israel. Mount Tabor was on the western part of Israel, Mizpah in the east. So these two geographical locations were a way of emphasizing how the false worship had permeated all of the land. The snare and the net speak to the people being beguiled and entrapped by their religious and political leaders who should have been watching them, who should have been guarding them. Instead, the rulers set up idolatrous altars and evil spread throughout the land. And the Baal worship became pervasive. It dominated the culture to where the leading worldview was Baalism. This was Israel, God's people. That's how far they had come. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter 
but I will discipline all of them. When a person knows the laws of God, they've grown up with that their whole life, and decides to leave them behind and neglect them, they are called a revolter of God's law. They're revolting against, rebelling against God's law. These priests and kings and leaders who knew better, who had the knowledge, have gone to great depth in actually thrashing the people with their nonstop idol worship. Their so-called sacrifices to their gods, it had no religious value. It was just butchery. But it wasn't, you can't impress a false god if a false god doesn't exist. And it's certainly not impressive to God, the real God. God will discipline them all. I want you to notice, he says, I will discipline all of them. There's a personal nature to all of this. It's a personal thing to God. He was their covenant God. Who have they spurned? It was him. And he'll fulfill his promise of chastising Israel as under the covenant. And this was spelled out numerous times, but in one case, in Deuteronomy 8, 5, it says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. That's a part of God's judgment. And let us as New Testament believers remember, for it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. That is one way of saying you sit there and decry the culture, and there's plenty to cry about, but start with yourself and being morally responsible. Clean up your own house. You can shut your trap about all that's going on with everybody else when you've got your own house to clean up. Right? Start with that. It's easy for people, you know, raise your hands, do all kinds of religious stuff, go to church, serve. Now, we may not be worshiping an idol. We could be maybe in our materialism, but gossiping, causing dissensions, factions. That's another way that I think judgment will begin with the household of God. The discipline of God and his children is an aspect of God being just, executing his judgment. And it may seem harsh at times. You may even think I'm being harsh and I feel like I'm really holding back from what Hosea is saying. But this is instructive. It's for growth. It's for maturity. It's for restoration. I've had people get up and walk out whenever I talk about the fear of God or the judgment of God. I could give you specific instances. They don't want to hear it. We're talking about God hating immorality. I can't hear it. Got to get up and leave. They get angry because the truth has a way of causing consternation in our spirits. It, it's, it's upsetting when I have this view of God that I've constructed myself, this mamby-pamby, you know, Let's just all hold hands and hug Oprah kind of God. 
and the God of the Bible is not that. It's not that God is all vindictive either, seeking vengeance against his children. But it's restorative. It's more like a grieved parent, right? You know, you see your kids, particularly when they're adults, do things you don't like. What do you do? Well, you can cajole. You can constantly talk to them about it, which only creates more separation. Or you can pray and cry in secret, which is what we do sometimes, all right? right? But it happens, right? Any loving parent knows what this is talking about. God's in a different position because God can do some things with the world to wake people up. I don't have that power. God does. But it's restorative, particularly for his children. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Um, He really doesn't beat around the bush here, does he? Uh, Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. I mean, there's some statements here that are, are troubling, are they not? They're troubling. Now, Ephraim is a prominent tribe, so some think it's just kind of synonymous with you know, a, a part of one of the tribes of Israel, but they also use it in terms of, of Israel itself, the northern kingdom. And the Lord tells them that their sins are not hidden from God. So the Lord's verdict has total knowledge of the motives, the attitudes, the actions of the people. That's why public speaking is the number one fear of people. And psychologists say it's because when you get up in front, it's like they can see you for who you really are. And that is way too troubling for people. Got too much to hide. I don't want to reveal myself. But you already know I screw up, so I can get up here all the time and know that it's just who I am, all right? Um, But that's the Lord's verdict. The past and the present are open books to him, right? It it, kind of doesn't crack me up, but it's amusing in some sense, I guess, that when people have some issue or problem in their life, all right, you know, it could be a marital issue, could be a host of things, financial issue, whatever. They, they, they feel put upon to come to church um, because it's too revealing. Um, and, and yet, here is where grace and love should be experienced. And I'm received because I know, you know what? Join the crowd, right? Because we all have experiences with family, marriages, but yet when you can experience that love and that acceptance, there is something extremely binding. And when you run from it and you hide, you, you fail to get there to experience, I think, that real depth of community that should be, should be in place. Not to say that there aren't stupid things that are said, and not to say that sometimes we don't get burned, but by and large, you experience the safety. It's just like a marriage. I can say stupid things to my wife, but we still have wonderful community. So 
you take the good with the bad, right? Um, so, the secret sins of individuals, of families, of religious leaders, what God is saying is, none of that is concealed. It's all out in the open. Hosea uses the idiom of playing the whore nine times throughout the book. And in doing so, it says that Israel is defiled as a nation. When a people worship false gods, practice sexual immorality, they are bringing injury to themselves and to others. And in Israel's case, they're in this state of pridefully being headlong in in idol worship and idol prostitution. Have you ever met somebody that perhaps they're in the midst of an affair and they're completely unwilling to talk or discuss? They don't have anything to do with truth or hear another perspective. They think they're doing what is free when it's obvious to everybody they're in bondage because they can't even hear an opposing view, right? And this is what Israel was like. They were in no shape of repentance. Now, if they'd had a a spirit of humility, they could recognize their wrong, acknowledge the Lord. Instead, they had a, can you imagine having this said about a culture? A spirit of whoredom permeated everything. They were given over fully to it without hesitation or thought, just headlong. And by testifying of God's face, it's a way of saying that in the face of truth, in the face of this covenant that God had made with his people, they continue to sin. And they claim they're okay. This is freedom to us. Care not what the Lord thinks. It's just the, an ultimate pride in the face of God. And in that state, they're actually repudiating repentance. And by stumbling in their guilt, Israel's not going to see any progress. Well, they could call it progress, but it's regression. And Israel is influencing the southern kingdom, Judah in this. And now they're participating in this debauchery. Rolling Stone had an article about an actor. I know sometimes they're easy targets, but I only read this because I think it epitomizes what many people, even including some Christians, think. Uh, But a couple years ago, Andrew Garfield was interviewed. You know, he played the role of Spider-Man, and he was um, um, Desmond Doss in Hacksaw Ridge. Very um, uh, skilled actor. However, he exemplifies what I think is Galatians 5, where it talks about the deeds of the flesh being sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And he's not unusual in this, but it makes the point. Um, He said he's trying to live life as openly as possible. Notice this freedom, okay? Including when it comes to his sexuality. Um, Garfield explained that he identifies, I love this, identifying as a heterosexual man, just whatever I say I am, that's what I am. Uh, He's not shutting out the possibility of being 
attracted to men in the future. He said, up until this point, I've only been sexually attracted to women. My stance toward life, though, is that I always try to surrender to the mystery of not being in charge. It almost sounds religious. I think most people, we're intrinsically trying to control our experience here and manage it and put walls around what we are and who we are. I want to know as much of the garden as possible where I pass. I have an openness to any impulse, an openness to any impulse that may arise within me at any time. Wow. That sounds so euphoric. It sounds just religious. It sounds like his mind is just so open and, and free, right? But freedom is being cast as being obedient to my passions. Hmm. I wonder if he thinks that if uh, people were to make fun of others of a different race or make fun of another person of a different sexual orientation. What if I just said, you know what? That's just my passion. That's my urge to do so. So the question is, why are some passions okay and others despised? This, my friends, is the upside-down world of the flesh and its political correctness and its cancel culture that's a cheap imitation of morality. Within their flocks and herds, they go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord for they have been born alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. We begin a section now where Hosea points out the consequences of the fleshly living and idolatry. In desperation, the Israelites take their sacrificial animals, lamb, goats, cattle, to consult the Lord. Surely he's going to be pleased with our multitude of gifts here, right? Right? Now, mind you, they're still ignoring God in their idol worship. They still live lives as committed polytheists, multiple gods. And Jehovah God was just one of them. So certainly he'll be glad that we give him this fraction over here and recognize and worship God with our animal sacrifices. And then they're also participating not only in the animal sacrifices, but sexual idol prostitutes that they're seeking. And then they want God, the real God, to bless them. They assume they can worship at the idol of Baal and be willy-nilly and worship with Jehovah God as well. But they have for too long been shaped by idol worship to understand the total contradiction their lives are. Spiritual and physical adultery. Part of the discipline would be that people um, would experience here is that God was going to withdraw his blessing. Withdraw blessing even with children. Withdraw blessing in some of livestock withdraw blessing in some of the crops, maybe then the people would come to repentance. 
They go to multiple gods for their provision. Forget the God who really provides. But this is damning testimony. God will cut them off. He will cut off the spigot. What she relies upon to sustain her will bring her destruction. This worship of all the false gods is fruitless. There's no divine power there. Children were born to the Israelites from their prostitution and adultery. The people attributed to them the blessings of Baal. So they're called illegitimate, strange, or foreign because they're offspring of idolatry and the fertility cult. They're the product of treachery and covenant-breaking. It's interesting, when you look at the history, they also believed in child sacrifice in the middle of this. This is the people of God associated with the worship of other gods. And listen to this. And during the New Moon Festival, 2 Kings 17, 17, says, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. What? And the worshiping God? We're quick to point a finger at that, and yet we have even within the people of God. Millions of babies murdered within the womb, and we call it freedom, taking control of my body. But it's the people of God forgetting God. These practices would not bring blessing, they would bring judgment. No amount of religious zeal can avert the judgment of God. Can't. You can do all your worship, parade all kinds of things up on the stage, and look how good we are. Look at this thing we did in the community, this and that. But if you've got these other things going on, idol worship, sexual immorality, uh, two-facedness with, you know, gossiping, factions, and all these other things going on as well. You're not, we're not fooling God, right? Right? I mean, this was constantly before me as a pastor with our kids. It's so easy to be one thing in front of people, to sit there and stand up on stage, oh, God, you know, you're great, all that. And then kids see something else, maybe the, by the way I treat their mother or... Um, myriad of other things. If they see dishonesty, they see hypocrisy, what, what do they think of God? I never wanted to say, do this because I'm a pastor. But even though I never said that, they still felt pressure. Because <laughs> it's just natural that a, a kid would, right? But the point is, there has to be a consistency and not a hypocrisy. Not perfection, but at least a, a consistency. But no amount of me singing or preaching can get rid of the inconsistency, if that's the case. If judgment begins with the house of God, then we have to ask ourselves, what's that mean for me personally? What is it I need to clean up and ask serious questions about? 
Have I been a part of the problem or a part of the solution? Have I been a part of dissensions and factions? Or have I been a part of unity? Am I helping? Am I hurting? Is there an area in my life that needs to be cleaned up? Am I secretly into porn? Or am I really trying to honor God with my life? Being honest about my struggle. Many in the modern church accept immorality as normal. Abortion as acceptable. Obeying the passions as freedom. And we fashion a God who does not judge, but is supposed to operate in a way that fosters our whims. And then we get upset when our blessings run dry and hardships occur. But the God who judges is the same God who rewards. The God who judges is the same one who writes history with the second coming of Christ, who brings hope, a solution finally to evil and to Satan and to people who reject him, reject God. We're prone to be a people who like objective morality for the other guy, but not for us. And as we learn and read Hosea, we learn the truth of the Jehovah God that we can love him for who he is and not what we wish him to be. As uncomfortable as that is, that I'm embracing a God who judges and embracing a God who loves. God judges sin. He judges our sin. But the gospel does not stop there. And the gospel is denuded unless we understand we serve a God who judges. The devil would have us stay in guilt and shame with our sin. The gospel has us hidden in the love of Christ even when we sin. We confess our sin to enjoy that love relationship. And to take a quote that is not mine, Satan knows our name and he calls us by our sin. Christ knows our sin and he calls us by our name. I love you. I love you, Tom, Sarah, Rich. I love you, Bob. I know what you did. I know what your life is like. I love you. I love you, Kevin, Janet. We got plenty of sin. But I love you. And you're hidden in me. All of this is true about judgment. But the gospel is also true. That's why it makes sense. That's why I can live with such appreciation for how good he is to us in his grace. Let's pray.